uncooperative. Too bad the overhead doesn't work because I had made this beautiful diagram which completely explained the entire book of Revelation and the end times. <laughs> but now we'll never know. What's up there now? Oh, be seated. Hey, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather together in the name of your son, Jesus, to bring you praise and thanks, to express our love for you and to one another. It's joyful for us to embrace each other and to welcome each other into presence, to be a family here. As this is a Thanksgiving Sunday, we want to give you thanks for the many blessings that you've given to us, least of all the material things that you've given us, but most of all, the blessing of salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have this phenomenally rich blessing of family and friends and church. Lord, we uh, turn our worship attention now from songs that we sing and words that we say to the proclamation of your word. And ask that you would please give us listening and attentive ears. We ask, Father, that you would fill us, the hearer and the speaker, with the Holy Spirit that you would fall on us with your presence, that you would make us known that in this time, not only have we been together with fellow saints, sinners saved by grace, but we are together with the hosts of heaven as we gather to bring you praise and worship. Now speak to us. We, your sons and your daughters, will give you attentive ears. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. In the years that were leading up to the Second World War, uh, Nazi Germany was developing a, a, a mild dislike for the Jewish people. There was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it was at this time that he was, he was confronted with a defining moment in his life. On November 9, uh, 1938, a group of paramilitary soldiers and some civilians that were aligned with the Nazi party they executed a series of coordinated attacks on the Jews called Kristallnacht, which just means crystal night. It was a name given because of all the broken glass that was uh, out in front of this, the stores and the streets. Jewish homes were attacked, uh, Jewish schools, hospitals were raided. More than 1,000 synagogues were burned to the ground. Um, 7,000 Jewish businesses were destroyed. A hundred Jews were killed, and 30,000 Jews were rounded up and sent to concentration camps. Meanwhile, the German authorities, the police, the army, did nothing. They just stood by and watched. They did nothing to stop it. In the aftermath of this, many Germans found themselves in a defining moment. And were they supposed to just look the other way and, and, and pretend that nothing was going on because that would be the safest thing for them to do to protect them themselves or were they to speak out to protest what was happening and that would be a very dangerous position to take. At first it seemed like Dietrich Bonhoeffer was going to take the first position. He was going to be silent because what, what could you do after all? Um, but later it became, became obvious to him that he needed to um, take a stand because this was his defining moment, and this defining moment called for courage and action. As events unfolded, it did turn out that he felt that God had providentially placed him in this time and in this place for just such a time as this. 
and that faithfulness to God and faithfulness to Jesus Christ meant that he needed to stand up against the Nazis and protest what they were doing against the Jewish people in his own nation. During the course of our lives, we will find that we come across defining moments, moments that are pivotal in our lives. And we have to decide, like Bonhoeffer did and like Esther does, whether we will take the safe course and preserve ourselves or whether we will do the right thing at great personal risk um, because it's, it would otherwise cost others so much. In such moments, it's, uh, it, it's hard to trust in God's providence that God has led us for where we are. But the point that we're making today is God has not placed you where you are only by accident. You exist where you do, when you do, with whom you do, under God's providential choice for just such a time as this. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Esther 4, 1. <clears throat> now you remember that <clears throat> the author opens up the book of Esther by describing this great feast, a six-month-long celebration, which really was his invasion plan for Greece. And so he was trying to solicit the support of the different governors and, and political people and military people to show them that he could afford such an invasion and he could afford to reward the people who joined him. As a grand finale to this great feast, Xerxes, as we know him as Ahasuerus in the Bible, Xerxes throws this, um, this finale and he, and he orders his wife Vashti to come forward with all of her regal splendor because it's gonna be a reflection of his grand splendor. But for some unexplained reason, Vashti does the unthinkable. She refuses the king's command. The king is humiliated. He's angry. He doesn't really know what to do, and so he asks his trusted advisors what to do, and they tell him that uh, she has uh, rejected him as, his, as, as her sovereign, and we can't allow people to do this because, after all, if he's going to lead the empire, he needs to lead his family. And they tell, her, they tell him to get rid of Vashti and find someone better. A beauty contest is held. All of the best-looking babes in the entire kingdom are brought together. The king chooses one. He happens to choose Esther. So Esther is, is brought into this, this king's harem, and uh, she's, uh, she finds the best favor among the king, and she is chosen to be the replacement for Vashti. Now, in the what follows next is, you know, the war, which took, took us about four years. And the king comes back to the capital, of, the winter capital of Susa, and we are told that there is another gathering of the virgins. He's already chosen the queen, but he has a, a very grand appetite to go with his position. So another selection of virgins is, takes place, and it's, we're told that it's during this time that Vashti's cousin, uncle, stepfather... Um, just hears about a, a plot to assassinate the king while he's sitting in the king's gate, meaning that he has an... What? Uh, now I've lost my place. Uh, Esther's uncle. Thank you. Esther's uncle, Mordecai, sits in the king's gate 
You know, I do that a lot, by the way. I'm glad somebody catches me once in a while. He hears about this, uh, this attempt to, to murder the king, and he lets it known to Esther that there's this conspiracy going on. Esther then goes and tells the king and also tells the king her source was Mordecai. Um, while the king is there, there's, the books are open. It's recorded that Mordecai has done this great service to the king. Usually, the king is very prompt about rewarding such acts, but for some reason, Mordecai's reward is overlooked. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's, it's recorded for him. Okay, now suddenly, Haman enters into the picture. Haman is an Agagite, meaning he's an Amalekite. He's a descendant from King Agag. And he is uh, considered by the king to be a prince among princes, and he's raised to the second highest position in, in the land. He's, the, uh, he's the, the prime minister, if you will. And the king gives the order that everyone is to acknowledge um, Haman's position and to give him the appropriate respect and to bow before him. Mordecai, however, will not do it. And Mordecai's friends, the other servants of the king and the official positions that they have in government, warn and question Mordecai, why do you not obey the king's command and bow down to the man the king has chosen to, to honor? Mordecai pretty much says nothing except his only excuse is that he's a Jew and that should satisfy them, but it doesn't. And so they ask him again, well, what's that got to do with it? And then they go to Haman and say, in spite of the king's command, Mordecai will not bow down to you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to let this insolence stand? Haman is furious. He decides that he wants to murder not only Mordecai, but everything Mordecai represents and every person that Mordecai is related to, he decides he wants to get his revenge best by murdering every Jew in the empire. He goes to the king at a very uh, propitious moment, and he informs the king that there's a certain subgroup in the kingdom they, they shouldn't even be considered human. They're, they're insubordinate. They're, they, they will not be kept in submission. And he asked the king if it's okay to uh, exterminate them, to get rid of them. He then offers the king a large sum of money, more than 60% of the annual tax revenue, if, he will let, if the king will let Haman uh, have these Jews executed at a propitious time. So his plan is to kill every Jew in the kingdom, and on a certain given day, which he decides is by rolling the dice, is, is still 10 or 11 months away, everyone is going to have permission. Go out and kill any Jew you want. Anything that they have, take it. It's, it's yours. So it's a, it's a good excuse for people to develop both racial bigotry and, and their, their greed to kill the Jews and take their, their stuff. That, Curiously, when Haman goes to the king, he doesn't mention the, the name of this race. Apparently, the king doesn't really care. He trusts Haman. He gives Haman his signet ring, which means you don't even have to ask me if you want to make a, a law. Just go ahead and do it. Here's my authority. You can make a law in my name. So Haman and the king sit down to have a glass of wine together, and we're told in the last verse of chapter 3, verse 15, that the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They were thrown into confusion because they didn't all hate the Jews. And they're wondering, why is this edict given that all of the Jews 
are to be executed. How very much like Nazi Germany for, B, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where this, this edict is given from the government, go out and get rid of the Jews. And, and they're wondering, you know, well, well, even if you don't agree with that, what can I do about it? You know, who, how can you fight government? You can't fight City Hall. If, this, if the government says, get rid of the Jews, you know, who can resist them? You, you just go along with it. So that's the picture that's set before us. Now we're in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So we're told that Mordecai learns all that had been done. You know, he must have been uh, on an inside track, or he must have had his ear to the, the ground to learn all of the things that were going on in the palace. You know, he's, he's aware of these, of these uh, murder intentions. He's now aware of what's going on. And it's curious because he's not just aware of the edict, but he's aware exactly how much money Haman has promised the king. We'll see that in a minute. So he becomes aware of this new law that it's okay to kill Jews uh, at the end of the year. And he begins to mourn. And he does this. You would think, first of all, that it wouldn't be unnatural for them all to feel sad and mourn and cry and, and pray. But he does this very publicly. And it makes me wonder if the, the, the public way in which he's mourning is meant to, one, show that he's a leader among the Jewish people, and he's trying to do so in a way that attracts the attention of the other public and hopefully the king. He goes up to, can't go into, he goes up to the king's gate, I think because he's trying to publicly protest this edict and he's trying to draw attention to the king. He can't go in the gate because no one is allowed to come in the gate uh, who is mourning. You know, kings have court jesters. They do not have court mourners. Uh, the kings keep themselves as far away from, from sadness as possible. But at any rate, Mordecai is, is expressing his, his, great, his great grief, and he wants to get this brought to the king's attention. Verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was, what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a written copy of the decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Again, we're told that, so here's Esther. She's in the harem. She's, she's in the harem of the concubines, or she's, she's in the palace. She can't leave. And here's Mordecai on the outside of the citadel, the palace. He's in the city right outside of, the, of the, pal the king's gate was the city square. 
he can't come in. So Esther has to send representatives, intermediaries, um, to carry the messages back and forth. The king has granted to Esther Hatak, one of his trusted eunuchs. He must be trusted, otherwise the king wouldn't have assigned him to look after the queen. And Esther tells him to go and find out what the heck is the matter with Mordecai. So he does exactly what Esther tells him to do. He goes outside the king's gate. He goes into the city square. He finds Mordecai. And then Mordecai tells him everything that's happened. Mordecai tells him that um, about Haman wanting to put all the Jews to death, uh, that, that he um, had somehow convinced the king, he'd, he'd manipulated the king to grant this edict to happen. He's even told him the exact sum of, of the money which has been given or promised into the treasury. Um, I think the reason why Mordecai tells Hatak the exact sum of money is he's trying to impress on Esther just how serious this matter is. This is not a light issue. There's a, there's a huge amount of money that's been promised. This is very serious business. And she's trying to show her how grave their situation really is. And then uh, Mordecai produces a copy of the edict and he tells um, Hatak to take this to Esther. And then finally, Mordecai tells Hatak to tell Esther, you know, please take a stand. Don't sit by and do nothing. Don't just look the other way. You know, tell her to step up to the plate. Tell her to help us. Tell her to go to the king and beg for mercy. Do whatever she can. Do whatever she has to, but help us. Verse 9. Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So Esther's attending eunuch, Hatak, then um, brings... Mordecai's entreaty to Esther, and immediately she begins to beg off. You realize what you're asking me to do can't be done, right? You realize how dangerous it is of this suggestion that you have. And everybody knows, including Mordecai, but she's pointing out everybody knows you can't just barge in on the king. Anyone who goes into the king's presence jeopardizes his life. He certainly... Mordecai does not want the queen to jeopardize her own life by bringing this matter before the king. Herodotus reports that the Persian kings had had this law in effect for a very long time. From Diocese, the Mede had put this law into effect that if anyone were to come into the king's presence without being summoned or invited, he was to be executed. Um, the only exception would be, remember, we talked about those seven men who were the king's friend, they could come in to the king unannounced. In fact, they could come into the king any time they wanted to, except if he was with sleeping with a woman. That was the only exception. The irony here is that Esther cannot come before the king. Haman can any time he wants to. Now, the odds are so heavily stacked against her, and nothing's going to indicate that anybody who's uninvited is going to be spared if they come into the, the throne room. The Persian law 
forbids it. The concealment of her identity as a Jew complicates it. Uh, the impulsiveness of the king, as displayed with what he did with Vashti, certainly threatens it. Now, of course, there's an exception, and that is if you're invited, you could come to the king. And that reminds us that there's a protocol. If you need to see the king, if you had urgent business, the protocol is you tell one of the emissaries, one of the king's eunuchs, one of the king's attendants, that you have an issue, you need to talk with the king. He'll take it to the king, and the king will invite you if he wants to. Now, if you violate the protocol, it looks like you're threatening the king. And so anyone who comes without this a, a correct protocol risks their life. Verse 13, <clears throat> and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. This is Esther's defining moment. This is the fork in the road. She can either try to save her own neck and, and, while, and, and watch her people perish, or she can risk her own life and hope that her intentions don't mean that she's going to be killed alongside. She knows the, the difficulty. She knows um, the unlikeliness of her her mission being successful. So Mordecai sends back this report to her, and he tells her basically three things. He has two reasons why she should go and approach the king at risk of her own life. He begins by saying, verse 13, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you're going to escape any more than all the other Jews. Hey, look, this edict says all Jews, every man, woman, and children, there's no exceptions. Eventually, they're going to find out you're a Jew and being in the palace is not going to save you. Esther needs to do the right thing at the risk of her own life because if she does go to the king, she might die, but she might save her own people. And if she doesn't go to the king, she will die, perhaps a little later than the rest of the people, but she will die. So she has to take the risk of doing the right thing and going to the king and pleading with him on behalf. Then he continues, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. This is actually astonishing because Mordecai is pleading with Esther, do the right thing, step up to the plate, risk your life, because if you don't, we're all going to die, you too. But then what he says was, if you don't, relief for the Jews will come from another place. That's fascinating to me. Why does he say that? Why does he think if Esther fails on her mission, God's going to do something another way? Because Mordecai is aware of the covenant promises of God. Mordecai is aware that God entered into a covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's son, Isaac, and with, with, and with uh, Isaac's son and with all of the people of Israel. And the promise, the covenant that God had made was, I will from you present a people as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as the stars in the sky, and secondly, through you will the Gentile nations be blessed. 
God could not go back on his covenant promises. And even though every Jew in the Persian Empire, which, by the way, is pretty much every Jew in the world at that time, God will raise up deliverance and save his people. He can't have them wiped out. And so Mordecai has this exceptional understanding of the covenant promises of God. You don't do it, people will die, but God will use someone else anyway. There's this very straightforward um, covenant promise. Now Mordecai closes his appeal with a very challenging question. He says, who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Remember, this uh, looming slaughter has come upon them by chance, literally by the rolling of the dice. Mordecai is suggesting to Esther, you very well may not be where you are simply because of the roll of the dice, simply by chance. Could it be that Vashti doesn't reject the king's command and, and, and act in an insubordinate manner? Could that be something more than just coincidence? Or that you, Esther, were gathered together with the other virgins to come into the king's harem to be selected from? And that you, by the way, just by chance happened to be selected from every other babe in the kingdom. And that you, these seven years ago, were selected to be the queen. Perhaps it's more than just a coincidence, more than just an accident. Perhaps, I'm just saying maybe, that God has placed you at this particular point in time, in this particular place in the kingdom, in this particular um, uh, urgent need of your people, at this particular defining moment, could it be that God has placed you here for this moment? Perhaps there's something way bigger at work here than a roll of the dice, than the irritation of an agagite, than, than, than the, the fate of, of the lots. Could it be, Esther, that God has placed you here for a purpose in this desperate time of our need? Who knows whether all these coincidences have behind them God's providential orchestration and that God has put you in the position you are in right now for just such a time as this. Perhaps, Esther, God will use your courage and your faith as an instrument to rescue his people. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply um, to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women and I will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, this fast really is clearly different from the previous fast that we talked about in chapter 3, remember, in verse 3 of, of chapter 4. That fast, Mordecai is gathered together to mourn for the edict. And this is an ongoing fasting. This fast, Esther's calling for, for three days and three nights, is because Esther intends to go to the king. She wants them to ho hold her up in prayer. So it's a different fast that he's talking about. 
This fast is to prepare um, Esther um, to go to the king. Now, in biblical times, fasting was rather a, a common, uh, normal means of expressing, expressing contrition. You know, you, you, you're, you're sorry for your sin. You want to express that to God, uh, to express dependence on God, uh, to to show God and to yourself that in the trials that you were in at the moment, you were trusting in God. It was a statement that there's more to life than just the, the physical necessities. It's a, it is by display a public disavowal of the philosophy of eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we may die. By the way, fasting is still an appropriate action for the Christian church today. And I think we ought to be fasting more than we do, both personally for the, the griefs and the needs that we have in our own lives, and corporately as a church, we should be fasting for, for the needs of the church. It's appropriate for us to fast and to seek the Lord's face. Sometimes it's good for individuals and churches um, to remind ourselves that the abundance that we experience is not the normal state of everyone else throughout time and throughout current geography, that the normal state is not fullness and abundance. It's hunger and emptiness. And we should acknowledge that. Difficult particularly for us. However, at the same time, we should not think of fasting as a way that we can implicitly do some action which then obligates God to do some action on his part to fulfill the request that I am making. You know what I'm saying? Is if you think you can fast and manipulate God to act for you the way you determine that God is supposed to act. We should, however, explicitly, when we are fasting, humble ourselves and pray and seek his favor fervently and, and, and ask for his solutions to the problems that we face. When we, when we fast, it's our tendency, you know, someone says that, that we, need to, we need to pray for something. I think we forget, you know, because stuff happens in the day. Stuff happens in life. And we forget to give ourselves fully to prayer. When you fast, you're reminded around the clock, I'm hungry, I'm going to pray. And if you have the excuse, I would pray, but I just don't have the time. Well, now you have the time because you're not eating three meals a day. And when you're hungry and supposed to be eating, you come and you fast and you pray before God. And, and it is through this um, exercise and acknowledgement of dependence on God you know, that we fast and pray. We're not trying to manipulate God. We're trying to submit ourselves. Anyway, Esther here needs to take her life in her hands. She's literally risking everything for her people. And notice, she's doing so without any explicit promise. And there's no voice from heaven saying, Esther, go and do this and I'll make things happen for you. There's no burning bush, you know, that convinces heaven that God, convinces Esther that God is in this. There's no miracles that she can go and manipulate and persuade the king to act and, and let her people go. She has to act without any explicit promise of any hope of success. She has no promise that she's not going to be murdered as soon as she steps into the throne room. There's nothing in the text that says, I'll take care of you, it'll be okay. Perhaps 
God is going to remain hidden in all this. He doesn't say he's going to do anything. There's no guarantees of success when you stand up for God because you don't know looking forward. You can't see the providential hand of God. You only see God's providence looking back in every case. So here in Esther, there's no promise of God's providential care. It's just, this is the right thing to do, Esther, no matter what happens, you go and do that. Yet, I could say on another level, Esther is guaranteed of success, but not necessarily the success, the success that she is seeking after. So she's guaranteed of success because God has committed one to maintain a people for himself. He is not committed to provide his people with all the comforts and the securities and the goodnesses that they want. He is committed to maintaining a people for himself, for his own glory. And he will always be glorified in whatever action. He's, she, he's leading Esther here to, to, to act in such a way that if she is obedient, no matter what the outcome, God will be glorified. If she's obedient and she does what's right to do and she's struck down at the door of the throne room, she will, be she will bring glory to God because of her obedience. And if she's successful and is able to rescue her people, she will bring glory to God through her obedience. The same thing is true of us. You know, if we will step out in faith... However weak or trembling or tentative those steps of faith are sometimes, we know that God will use us in a way that brings him glory. You know, he, we might step out in faith and we might ask him to heal our disease. He may or he may not. He might transform our marriages at our prayer requests. He might plant thriving missions or successful churches through us. Or he just might sustain us through our obedience to him. Now, either way, we don't have the guarantee that God will act in a way that pleases us because he's God and you're not. But we have a guarantee that if we act in faithful obedience, God will use you to bring glory to himself. Is that not why you exist? To bring glory to God? So anyway, prepared by this fast, Esther's going to go to the king, even though it's against the law. It's a supremely dangerous moment, but she's prepared to go. And if in the process she, she dies, she's prepared for that too. There's an expression here, she says, if I perish, I perish. She's not saying... Whatever will be, will be. This is, not, this is not fatalism here. She's just saying, I'm okay with whatever happens. I'm okay. And we ought to be saying that too. You know, I'm okay with whatever happens as long as God is glorified through it. I'm okay suffering with a disease that God does not cure me of. I'm okay with that if it brings God glory. I'm okay with devastating loss. I'm okay with losing my own life. If in the process... God is pleased and God is glorified. And that's what Esther is saying here. I'm okay with that. This is a supreme expression of, of courage on her part. Have you noticed 
All of a sudden, the Esther that we've been talking about for the last three chapters is a different Esther. The Esther that we've been talking about has been moving along with the flow. The only thing that we can say nice about Esther up till now is she's a babe. She's good looking. She's stunningly beautiful. Am I making my point? <laughs> but it seems like she's also been a real compromiser. She's been keeping secrets from the king about her identity as a Jew. As a Jew, she's been sleeping with a pagan king who's not her husband. She marries a pagan outside of her faith. She's not observing kosher law. She's not keeping Sabbath. She's been a sellout up to this point. Notice the Esther that we were suddenly confronted with. This Esther is intelligent, shrewd. She's uh, politically savvy. She's bold. She's courageous. It is possibly, we don't know yet, possibly through Esther that God will providentially save his people. She becomes a, a, a real contender all of a sudden. This is her defining moment. This is where she develops from being cowardly and a sellout to being someone of, of great stature. Your defining moment does that with you too. It either makes you someone that God can powerfully use or you continue to be a wimpy sellout. Esther's now going to take the option before God and she's going to put it all on faith that God will do what pleases him. People of faith frequently find themselves in similar situations, you know, even if the stakes are not as high as they were for Esther. And how we respond in those moments determines not just what happens in God's providential care, it determines and displays the very character that what we're made out of, or it develops that character. Spurgeon once wrote, I believe that in dark times, God is making lamps with which to remove the gloom. Martin Luther is sitting by his father's hearth in the forest when the Pope is selling wicked indulgences. He will come out soon and stop the crowing of the cock of the Romanish Christ-denying Peter. John Calvin is quietly studying when false doctrine is most rife. He will be heard of at Geneva. I don't suppose that Peter, James, and John had any inkling of what the Lord was going to do by them when they had left their boats and nets at his call. John dreamed that one day he might sit on an earthly throne and his brother James on another, but that was not to be, yet they have obtained a nobler heritage. To each of us there is a share in the purposes of heaven. Who knows, brother or sister, whether you are put in the family to save your family? Who knows whether you were made to live in a back street to bless that street? Who knows whether you were set in a forlorn district to raise that district? Who knows whether you were put into that nation to save that nation? See, at this moment, Esther has to decide who she really is. Like I said, up to this point, she's been very passive, but in this defining moment, she becomes transformed. She's, she becomes a woman who is heroic, and, and moral in her stature, powerful uh, confidence. She's, she is fundamentally responsible for saving the, the Jews. But it's unlikely that ever, 
that any of us will ever have to face a predicament of that magnitude. But the point is that we still all face these dire moments of decision. We still have to face these, these moments that, that define who we are. In fact, possibly the most defining decision, the defining moment that we make is when we decide to become a Christian, when we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we identify with God's people. Remember, Esther's not identifying with God's people up until this moment. She has kept her secret, uh, her race secret from the king. When we become Christians, we identify not only with Christ Jesus, but with God's people. It's a defining moment of, of developing our, our, our own character. And it's that decision, that public decision, which then starts to energize our life and shape our lives and shape our character and determine our future. It transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit into something that God can use that will bring him glory. This, this life of, of, of being a Christian, however, is not just that one transforming decision that most of us have made in our life. Life really is a series of lesser defining moments that we have to make day by day. And we have to choose whether we're going to identify ourselves with Christ or identify ourselves with the world. We have to choose whether we're going to identify ourselves with the church or identify ourselves with the pagan world. When we find ourselves in this crucible of, of testing or, or of crisis, as Esther's finding herself, you know, our, our focus ought to not be, how am I going to get myself out of this problem? How can I minimize the damage that this is going to create in my own life? Our focus ought to be, how can God use me in this circumstance, in this time, to define his purposes for how can he use me now in such a time as this? How can God use this situation? We need to ask ourselves, does God really just place me in this point of time as a coincidence? Am I really here living in Port Townsend by accident? Am I really part of Calvary Community Church just because it's the favored thing? Or has God been behind all of this, orchestrating your life through all these defining moments? Might God have placed you in your neighborhood to witness to your neighbors? Or in the place that you work at the time that, of that business's development? Or those coworkers' lives? Because you were needed in that moment. Might God have placed us in this country at this time to take a stand for what's right and not just to watch passively as the world goes by? Might God have used these points in history and placed you here and now for a reason? What can God be doing through our our, our church and our, our community, our nation. Why, why has God placed me right here, right now, at this defining moment? Is it an accident that you exist at this point of time, in this community, in this church? Or has God raised you up for such a time as this? Our impact on the world is not going to be as great as Esther's, but who knows what God's plan for us? Our task is not to about the scope of our influence. Our task is to be obedient to God 
and to go where he sends us. And sometimes we're not even sure what God is guiding us. There's a sense of ambiguity. Mordecai expressed that ambiguity too. You know, he says, if you don't help us, then God's going to help us through some other source. Perhaps God has placed you here. There's a sense of, yeah, I don't really know what God's got planned here. He hasn't laid out the plan for me. I don't have the complete schematic. But I do know that God is in charge and that I can trust him. Mark Roberts wrote um, a letter about this woman in his church, and the letter says, Sherry has discovered an unexpected ministry at her local Burger King restaurant. Each week she spends several mornings there preparing Bible studies while enjoying a cup of coffee. Over the past months, she's become acquainted with many of the employees and the regulars. Increasingly, she's been able to share the love of Christ with these people, even though it means less time for study. A few days ago, Sherry encountered one of the employees out in the parking lot. Paul was deeply distraught. When Sherry asked what was wrong, he shared that his sister had just died from a stroke, leaving behind a husband and several children. Right there in the parking lot of Burger King, Sherry ministered to Paul's needs. She listened to his grief and prayed for him and his family. And I couldn't help when I read that letter but to think of the words of Mordecai when, uh, when Mordecai says, perhaps you have been raised up for just a time as this. You know, perhaps Sherry has been raised up to go to the Burger King and do her Bible study for just such a time as this. And indeed, as we offer our lives to God for his work, God is going to direct us to not one pivotal moment, but probably many of these forks in the road, many of these moments, times like this. Perhaps God has brought you, like Esther, through circumstances which are beyond your control. I mean, that's what happened to Esther, right? She didn't plan to get to this position. In fact, she's done everything wrong up to this point. She's been an, a woman of, of compromise, not just moving along with the flow. She's made some bad decisions on the, on the way. And perhaps also, like Esther, you have concealed your real identity as a Christian from those around you. And then suddenly you find yourself facing a calamity, either in your life or in their lives, or in their emotion or yours, and God's calling on you. And he wants to use you. And he wants to express his affection, his love, his care, his providential oversight over someone else's life. His purposes are greater than yours, and who knows? Perhaps you've come into your present situation for just such a time as this. Let's pray. Esther was given no confidence that she wouldn't die in the process of being obedient. But there was something bigger at stake. Father, I pray that we are less concerned with our comforts and our safety, our security, our lives, than we are about bringing you glory through whatever providential place and time you have placed us.
in the end, mature us and help us to be bold, to take a stand for you, to do what's right, even though it's at great personal risk. Because always, when we're obedient, no matter what the consequence to ourselves, you will be glorified. Father, please use me to bring glory to you in whatever way you see fit. We pray this together in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.